What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Uncultured Cinematic Universe. Here we are. Uh, every episode, we take a look at classical and iconic films from two perspectives, uh, that of the diehard fan and that of the uncultured who's never seen it before until now, this very moment. Uh, we're your hosts, Justin and Joe, and uh, today we'll be discussing a movie that is near and dear to my heart while Joe just sat back and remained in the dark for some fucking reason. <laughs> um so yeah so you can find us on youtube uh just search for uncultured cinematic universe and check it out there where i'm sure one day we'll eventually probably be doing a live show streamed there at some point uh or if you dig more on audio kind of stuff you can find us where you get your podcasts at uh spotify apple podcasts uh and the like uh so yeah, without further ado, episode four, here we are. Let's take a stroll down to our local Big Kahuna Burger, grab a $5 shake and some heroin, and discuss the 1994 film <laughs> Pulp Fiction. Joe, <laughs> Pulp Fiction, you had never seen this before. This was your first time seeing this. This is my first time seeing Pulp Fiction in all my years. I always forget Bruce Willis is in this movie. It's they throw him at the end. So like in the old opening title card, it's a and Bruce Willis after they go yeah. through the people that are in it. It's always a fun surprise. Yeah, yeah. There's uh the the titles of this movie, the title cards in this movie were kind of insane because you get like Christopher Walken in there who has <laughs> like, like one amazing scene that I was waiting for the entire movie. And when it finally came, it was awesome. Yeah. Um, and then Bruce Willis gets the end. Yeah. Um, which, which makes sense. He gets kind of, he gets, he gets the middle half of the movie. It's true. He's, um, you know, believe it or not, Bruce Willis is kind of like the anti-hero of the movie. And uh, we'll talk about that as we get past spoiler territory. But um, let, let me give you, let me hit you with some, some numbers and things here. So Pulp Give me Fiction, those numbers. I will. I got them for you. Uh, Pulp Fiction released October 14th, 1994. Uh, mm-hmm. You were not born yet. Oh, yes, I was. Oh, you were? Was oh, like, yeah. I was like 10 months old. Still in diapers. Yeah. Uh, Still in diapers. <laughs> written, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Story by Quentin and Roger Avery. Um, I don't know what else Roger... Avery has done, but he is credited with that. Um, so this movie is 154 minutes. It is a tight 154, two and a half hours or so. Um, so, all right, you ready for this, Joe? Here we go. The budget of this movie was $8 million. This was an indie. Insane. It was an indie, of course, released on by Miramax. But uh, the you want to guess the, the box office, worldwide box office? Five hundred million dollars. Okay, all right, bring it back a little bit, because like, just from dorm movie posters alone. Oh, we will talk about that. But <laughs> <laughs> this movie uh, domestically did a hundred and seven million. That's pretty good. Worldwide, two hundred and fourteen. Insane. They, they they made quite a bit of money on that one. Old old Harvey. <laughs> all the the Weinstein's <laughs> laughed all the way to the bank. You know it. Uh, so yeah, this, uh, this movie was wildly successful and it opened the floodgates for numerous other independent, uh, efforts for years to come. Um, you know, a couple of pieces I've, I've seen, you know, reference this film as, uh, 
the doorway for, you know, like Paul Wes Anderson and um, those types of movies, Wes Anderson movies to get made. The, the indie sweethearts that can actually have an impact at the box office. Really, really cool stuff. You don't think of this being an indie movie um, because it has such a lasting impact in that way. Not to say that indie movies can't do that, but it just seems like almost like a big budget action movie in retrospect. Yeah. But really, this is just because Tarantino's so big these days, I guess. Yeah, and this was his second film, I believe. Uh, his first one being Reservoir Dogs, uh, which if you haven't checked that out, I highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, it tech, I guess according to some online theorists, it belongs in the same universe uh, as Pulp Fiction, which is exciting, right? Where are these theories coming from? Who is it like? The people on the internet. There's there's names and stuff uh, that pop up in Reservoir Dogs that like same last names and things like that. Even references even further, still 10, 20 years in the future with the Kill Bills. Uh, They make reference to some characters in this movie. Um, There's a specific reference in Pulp Fiction that I wanted to talk through uh, when it comes to Kill Bill. Yeah. uh, And the Uma Thurman character. Ooh, uh uh-huh. Yep, the bride. Yep, let's do it. Uh, So yeah, so it goes without saying, this movie had a stacked as fuck cast. Uh, John Travolta taking a really interesting role um, as this greasy, slick-backed hair hitman oh the hair fresh off the the their own cinematic universe of look who's talking uh he did look who's talking look who's talking too and look who's talking now which he did all three he did (laughs) he did the one with the dogs yeah he he made a a brief brief um appearance in it but yeah he just came Uh. off of that train uh obviously of greece fame in the early 80s or 70s or whatever the hell it was but uh, yeah, this was a, a, an interesting role for him. Uh, Sam Jackson, previously in Jurassic Park the year previous, uh, as well as wow. Goodfellas in 1991. Uh, just those two off the bat are just when you immediately think of when someone says Pulp Fiction, you think of those two in the black suits uh, and pistols, you know? Um, yeah, I definitely thought this movie would be more about them rather than the kind of the more conversational vignettes that it is. Yeah. Um, and I really want to get into how Samuel L. Jackson's character kind of comes in and out of this movie because I thought after watching like the first, I mean, we'll, we'll get into the plot of it all, but like after watching the first half of it, I kind of took a pause and I was like, is, is that it for him? Like, is that... Mm-hmm all the scenes that he got that got him that Oscar nomination or you were thinking, you were thinking it was little, little vignettes. Okay. It all kind of comes back around. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, yeah, I want to, I want to jump into that, but here, let me hit, let me hit you with some more stuff. So Uma Thurman, here's another fun, fun thing. She was 24 when she made this movie. She was 24. Insane. Right. She, she's kind of maintained that same level of just like, she's looked the same since the nineties. She looks like an alien in this movie in the best way possible. <laughs> Bruce Willis, of course, coming off of Die Hard and Death Becomes Her. That's a fun Halloween movie to watch. And then, of course, you get Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Ving Rhames, Eric Stoltz, Christopher Walken, like you said. And then, for those eagle-eyed viewers, we're on Bushimi Watch with Steve Bushimi making his Was 30- Bushimi in this? Did you, were you not even paying attention? He was the Buddy Holly 
dressed uh, waiter at Jackrabbit Slim's. He's the what? one who took their order. I have to look up an image of that real quick. Keep talking. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I know you're going to dig this because you're an Oscars guy. Uh, this movie won Best Original Screenplay at the 67th Academy Awards. And also okay. a boatload of other nominations. Uh, best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for John Travolta, Best Supporting Actor, Sam Jackson, Supporting Actress, Uma Thurman, Best Film Editing. This movie like went to, to bat. They only took home one, but still, they, they were a, uh, uh, it was a force to be reckoned with. Uh, it was really kind of introducing Tarantino as, as an, an Oscars player, um, a t- which a he, he's kind of held on to. Yeah. And he was pretty reasonably young making this. I mean, I know he kind of shows up towards the end and he's like this little scrawny guy. Yeah. Yeah. You don't expect to see him, even though like he shows in that, like also, also supporting actors in here, but yeah, he's a, uh, He's a he's a neat role, and I can't wait to talk about that. I have a very specific section to talk about Quentin Tarantino's <laughs> role that he wrote for himself. Uh, he said menacingly. Uh, so I want to say I want to talk about first about like why why we chose this episode or why I chose this episode specifically uh, to talk about Pulp Fiction because this movie is really important to me. Um, I grew up with it, uh, watched it a ton. Uh, this was p- one of the first few movies that we got as a family that was part of like our first nice at home theater setup. We had like the big TV and the nice surround sound and like the nice couches. We just redid the floor, uh, and and it was like a really nice living room. And this one and like Goodfellas and some other movie I can't remember were like the main sections that we had, the main movies that we had. Um, and I remember being like really excited too because I watched it with my dad, and I was you know twelve or thirteen at the time watching this incredibly hard R movie with just graphic (laughs) violence and language and all kinds of craziness. So it was like, Ooh, I get to watch this movie with my dad. And like, we immediately bonded over it. We watched it so much uh, together and even separately too, that we were able to easily quote it to one another. Um, It's a pretty quotable movie. Yeah. A hundred percent. And specifically, the soundtrack became a summer staple for the Jackson family. Uh, Really? Yeah. So, summers uh, of my teenage years, I would work with my dad at uh, the car dealership that he worked at um, up in Commerce, Georgia. It was uh, a Chevrolet dealership, and he was a service manager there. And I would get to go there and wash cars and do whatever the hell I I could to make money for the summer. Uh, but every summer we would take a week off and we'd go to Mexico beach with the family. We'd meet some friends down there, but, um, we knew it was the start of vacation when we would get in the car and we would throw on the CD and we would start the soundtrack. So the soundtrack starts with just like the opening bit of dialogue with Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer's character honey bunny <laughs> and <laughs> just just talking at each other it's like i love you pumpkin i love you honey bunny it's like, everyone be cool this is a rubbery so like it starts with gunshots and then it goes straight into you know dick dale's miserloo and it was just like all right it's <laughs> summer vacation time listening to that soundtrack um i also have a piece on, on talking about the music too because it's really um, uh, amazing but this became my cool movie to show off to friends growing up um 
in, in my teen years. They would come over to the house and be like, hey, let's watch Pulp Fiction. It's rated R. You're not supposed to see it. But like my parents says it's cool. Like, let's watch it. Uh, so that was like, that was my first tip of being like that guy of like, let me show you this cool movie you've never seen. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my experience with this. Um, so first, next, I want to get to your perspective, Joe, without getting into too much spoilery territory, just give me your thoughts on Pulp Fiction. What did you think from the experience? Here are my thoughts, um, on Pulp Fiction. There's areas that I liked a lot. And there's areas that I didn't like, uh, and uh, I'll get into all of them. Um, Start, just go ahead, just do it. Oh well, I talked about like the Samuel L. Jackson of it all. Um, <laughs> you obviously have like that opening kind of vignette of the two of them visiting the the apartment and doing what they do there. Um, and I kind of thought like so so going into this, like you said, I, I'm I'm familiar with like the Oscar history of this movie. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for kind of the scene for each of these, uh, actors where you can kind of tell like, okay, that's what got them the Oscar nomination. Um, and so after that first scene, uh, Samuel Jackson kind of falls out of the movie for about an hour, Mm -hmm. um, while they're focusing on the Bruce Willis stuff going into the movie. I definitely thought it would be more about these two hitmen's going after Bruce Willis but it's not really that at all. It's more just about like uh, concurrent storylines happening. Um, and so I, I, I was kind of thinking like, okay, yeah, like that first scene is maybe enough to, to do it for Samuel L. Jackson, kind of give him, give him a moment there. Yeah. And then he, they bring it all back together at the end. The end. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, which okay. He gets became a really my favorite inter- part. He gets a really interesting arc. Uh, Sam Jackson's character of Jules Winfield. You know, like like you said, that opening that opening scene uh, of him, just just if you're just looking at his character alone, like how does he, how did he get that supporting actor nomination? Uh, honestly, yeah, that opening scene, I would be like, that's enough, because um, you get so much out of just that little screen time that he has at the beginning. He's so intimidating. Um, oh, the way the the lights just like shining off of his eyes was so intense. It's piercing, yeah, a hundred percent. Like he comes off as really cool. Like first of all, like it's Sam Jackson; he's effortlessly cool. But then when he needs to turn on like intimidation mode, it's like holy shit! I am terrified of this man. <laughs> Immediately, the the scare tactic of eating the hamburger and drinking the man's sprite to oh, empty- drinking. While All maintain, of the sprite, while maintaining complete eye contact, is amazing. And then, of <laughs> course, the Ezekiel twenty five seventeen reading is just—it's iconic. It—it's been spoofed multiple times, but like thousands, millions of people have Ezekiel twenty five seventeen in some form or fashion tattooed on their bodies. I'm sure. Uh, it's not a real Bible verse, first of all. But <laughs> is it's, it really not? It's really not. It's cool as shit, though. It's really cool as shit. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, I, I definitely knew about like the Bible verse of it all. I I I, I knew kind of going into it that it was very much like a uh, a hitman with a code uh, right, type yeah. movie. He um, even I so just... yeah. My favorite part is at the end when they're in the well. Okay, I'm gonna stop right there. I'm gonna put a pin in this before we go any mm-hmm. further. I'm gonna give. Uh, I want to do like we did the past couple episodes. Joe, I'm going to give you two minutes on the clock. Oh, God. I will, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna hold it up. I'm gonna show you. I got two minutes here. Do your damnedest to give me the plot in its entirety of Pulp Fiction. I see. I knew this was coming, and I, I should have like written something down and cheated. Mm. But I'm gonna try to do it just off my own damn brain. Actually, you know what? I'm gonna give you three minutes because this movie <laughs> is this movie is out of order. It's mementoed. It is. It is. Uh, it's kind of all over the place. So I'm going to give you an extra minute. I'm going to do that. And the, out of the Christopher Nolan story. saw this and went, yes. 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 I'm going to make that. So um, so here we go. Three minutes. Uh, and here we go. Okay. Um, Pulp Fiction is set in uh, Los Angeles in, I believe, the 90s, although the time period is never really specified. Um, it starts with two um people in business suits named vincent and jules they're kind of driving around they're talking about stuff this is very much a movie about conversations between people people talking about stuff uh that's happening around them but also just their own internal thoughts uh vincent and jules are driving um they arrive at a building they're talking about how their boss uh has a bit of a history of violence they work for uh somewhat of like a crime boss in uh Los Angeles, and you come to realize that they are hitmen, and they have been sent out to go and intimidate slash kill uh, some people who maybe kind of went and reneged on a deal with their boss. And so the first uh, vignette of many in this movie is them entering this apartment, getting a... A big old MacGuffin of a briefcase that we never see, uh, but which glows when they look at it. Um, And then uh, Samuel Jackson kind of has uh, some great moments where he's intimidating these people. uh, And then ultimately um, they kill two of them. uh, And then it kind of uh, fades away from that uh, vignette uh, and then goes into... What it does is it goes forward in time and you don't really realize how much forward in time... Halfway through. Okay. Um, So then they go and talk to their crime boss, um, Vincent, who is played by John Travolta, um, has been assigned to kind of look after the crime boss's wife, who is played by Uma Thurman, um, while the crime boss is away. So um, he uh, basically like takes her on a date of sorts while also being afraid of being too close with her. Um, and they go to this diner and they dance and they win a dance competition. And then she, uh, ODs on his heroin, um, because he wanted to be chill. And so he thought it'd be a good idea to take heroin before he took her out on the state. She thought it was cocaine. She snorts it up in her nose. You don't do that with heroin. She ODs. Um, he ends up taking her to his, uh, drug dealer friend's house where they have to, uh, plunge some adrenaline straight into her heart and a needle. Uh, and then she survives and they agree not to talk about it. And then uh, meanwhile, the crime boss is paying Bruce Willis, who is a boxer, to throw a fight. Um, Bruce Willis ends up uh, cheating him and taking the money and trying to run away with his girlfriend. Uh, the crime boss uh, sends out a hit on him. Bruce Willis ends up shooting uh, Vince, uh, John Travolta, in his house. Uh, and then um, he ends up actually, uh, getting into a fight with the crime boss. He ends up saving him from these guys and the crime boss lets him go, uh, with his girlfriend. And then it all circles back to fuck. You know what? I forgot the first, uh, part of this story. And so it circles back to these, uh, people in the diner and I couldn't do it. You were so close. I'm glad I gave you an extra minute. <laughs> no, I, I thought the first, uh, like 10 minutes of this story is something completely else. Yeah. You know, it's, and I didn't it... even mention Christopher Walken. Oh man. 
<laughs> you you did admirably though. You almost got there. If you had thirty more seconds, you'd be like, and then they end up at the diner. Um, I, I spent that's way too much spent. time on that first part. I mean, it's a wow. it's, it's a good part. But yeah, uh, you did pretty time, well. Time flies when you're panicked and talking about Samuel Jackson. It's true. You're right. Um, so this movie takes place over the course of I think about <laughs> three days, three distinct days. Um, I, I could believe that all, there's definitely nighttime at some point. They're all interwoven in different uh, pieces, which is uh, interesting. You know, the out of order narrative structure. Um, so the main planes of action that you see are the diner, like like you mentioned. It's all both the it, you know, uh, bookends the movie at the beginning and the end. Uh, there's Vincent and Mia going on their excursions. Vincent and Jules going on there. Uh, stuff and then there's the whole butch and his misadventures <laughs> that he hits um but yeah so uh let's talk about the things that stand out the most in this movie first and foremost uh it's the hyper violence and you mentioned it uh in your uh, recap uh, the quippy and s- just slick conversation and dialogue uh, were you expecting that have you seen any other tarantino movies I have. So it felt I did, familiar. It, it it felt familiar. Um I I so I feel like in the in the realm of college dorm room poster cinema, um, you're either like a pulp fiction or a fight club. And so I watched Fight Club uh instead of watching Pulp Fiction growing okay. up. Okay. Um so I'm definitely on that side of things. But then I also I think my real introduction to Tarantino was probably Inglorious Bastards when that mm. kind of breakout happened uh for Christoph Waltz. Um yeah. that was kind of the right age for me to be watching those movies, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh and then uh I've kind of followed along ever since then, but uh my favorites are definitely the Kill Bills. Yeah, um for sure. Which uh, I've watched a few times and I actually have a hot take on Pulp Tell Fiction. Me violent not as violent as i thought it was going to be it's sure. not like over the top like tarantino blood is spraying everywhere except for the one scene where his gun accidentally goes off and he blows, blows his head, his head off, off. <laughs> yeah which That's... i i i did kind of laugh at it's it's played for comedy even though it's it's dark comedy for sure it's like i shot him in the face my god like that that's hilarious um but yeah so you mentioned the... At the end of the movie, the last scene, they stick their guns down their pants as if like his gun didn't just go off an hour before. (laughs) (laughs) They're professional. You're right. No, you're right. Professionals, though. Um, So you mentioned something about college dorm room posters and all that. This movie can easily fall into the lame uh, film fuckboy camp for sure. Uh, And you mentioned the other movie in that same camp of, of Fight Club. Uh, mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, you know, every fuckboy dorm room uh, had this poster. E- it was either like the movie cover art of like Uma Thurman on the bed with the cigarette and all the text and everything like the yellow and red. Uh, or mm-hmm. it's the um, Travolta and Sam Jackson with the guns pointing like at the down at the camera. Um, it was either one of those. And then it was Fight Club. And then it was like the two girls making it on the bed poster. Like that's quintessential. Oh, and then there's also like a glow in the dark tie dye fucking Grateful Dead poster for some reason to show that they oh hell they yeah. Smoke. Um, but yeah, like the same dude bros who love Pulp Fiction and American Psycho and this movie for the wrong reasons. 
are, <laughs> you know, if they watch this, those movies and think like the protagonists are awesome, like fuck that. They're so stupid. That's they to the be emulated. They missed the point. But um, I'm glad we both don't fall in that camp because like I can easily see We're how. Great. Like, yeah, I can easily see like it's like, oh, yeah, like badass with a gun. It's like, no, like he's being really clever or he's saying something really unique and um, uh, a, a, a neat commentary on just hyper violence in L.A. at the time, uh, even though this universe is, you know, the 90s uh, L.A. crime ridden all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a it's a unique take for sure. Um, but yeah, so, uh, another thing that stands out, of course, is the performances, uh, stand out from everybody, unique and different role for John Travolta, Sam Jackson just being just the epitome of cool, of course. Sam Jackson is kind of my MVP. Um, uh-huh, and I, yeah. I didn't, I, I wanted to bring it around so perfectly in my plot description, but the key to this movie is what you were saying, how it's kind of like sandwiched by that same diner scene. And so the movie starts out with um, Tim Roth and uh, Amanda Palmer, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and they're just kind of randomly, they're, they're kind of random characters. They're not really a part of the main group. Um, and you realize that they're just having this conversation in this diner and they're about to rob it. They're bank robbers. They're kind of low level bank robbers. And he's having a conversation around like how no one really, ever really robs restaurants. So there's like less security and stuff like that. And then they go ahead and rob it. Cuts it's black. Genius. It's a genius. Then, then I know there's, there's some great ideas around robbing in this movie. <laughs> um, then you get into the first uh, part with the hitman, then the Bruce Willis stuff. And then what it does is kind of like brings you back to the hitman. Uh, I know I'm kind of just adding on to my plot description at this point. Okay. I, I want to, I want to fill it out. Um, and it turns out they, they actually brought one of the guys from the apartment into the car with them they accidentally end up blowing his head off. And so it becomes like 20 minutes of we have to clean this car, yeah. which is where Tarantino's character comes into place. So yeah. Tarantino plays a. I'm just going to say like extremely annoying white uh, guy in a bathrobe that Samuel L. Jackson's character inexplicably has a lot of uh, um, a respect for. I would say. Yeah, I think the connection there is, and I can't remember if it's a throwaway line or something, but Jimmy and Jules used to be partners. And Jimmy used to be like a ruthless motherfucker, which is why he respects him. And so it also comes back around. So Jimmy was also able to get out of the life, which is another thing that Jules like respects about him. He was able to do it. He was able to get a wife and live at home and not be a hitman anymore. So mm-hmm. he has like two points of, of reverence for Jimmy. Yeah, and a key thing that happens here in that first shootout that they don't necessarily show at the beginning is that a guy pops out of the closet in the apartment and or the bathroom in the apartment, I will say, uh, and shoots at uh, John Travolta and Samuel Jackson, but they don't get hit. The bullets kind of like uh, bounce around them, hit the wall behind them. John Travolta, uh, it's it, it really becomes kind of like a, a fun little like man of science, man of God moment because John yeah. Travolta is just like, oh, that's just random chance. Um, and then Samuel Jackson starts to take it as a sign of like, oh, this is an absolute miracle. I'm having an existential crisis. I kind of need to get out of this job and yeah. start something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that all kind of comes to a head. They uh, 
they clean their car. Uh, like we were saying, they, they kind of stop off in suburbia with Quentin Tarantino. Um, they call their crime boss who assigns them Harvey Keitel, who's actually kind of the most polite cleaner yeah. um, you've ever seen. Um, he, <laughs> he instructs them basically how to deal with this car that has like blood and guts in it. They, they first have to clean it and kind of bleach it. They cover it with blankets and then they take it to his guy over at the, at the dump. Uh, so cool. and who, who kind of gets rid of cars for them. And then, uh, and then, uh, that kind of leads into the scene that happened earlier where they're reporting back to the boss. Uh, you know, at that point that John Travolta's character goes on his own merry way. But before that happens, they, they have a little bit of a moment, um, at the diner and this is all out of order, but this is actually the closing scene of the film where they go and just get breakfast. Cause they've had. They've had they've day, had a right? morning, a morning. They've had a morning. You ever have one of those mornings? Um, and then it was actually really fun because they were at the diner and I texted you at the beginning of this movie. I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, this is this is just going to be a big diner movie like this is this is about diner conversations. And 100 um, percent in this conversations. And I I forgot for a second about the first scene in this movie. And then it hit me. I was like, oh, this diner is about to be robbed uh, by the people from the beginning, which happens um, after um, Vince and Jules have a conversation about Jules wanting to quit and kind of finding his own way in the world and doing something different. The (laughs) Vince goes to the bathroom. The couple in a booth, uh, a few booths over, decides to rob the place. They're shouting at everybody to kind of empty their wallets. Um, Samuel Jackson throws his wallet into uh, the bag, but then also grabs Tim Roth um, and uh, obviously points a gun at his face. However, he meets him on a good day. Um, He doesn't actually want to kill him. Meanwhile, Tim Roth's girlfriend is kind of freaking out. It becomes this uh, uh, a bit of a standoff between them which then escalates when uh, Vincent comes out of the bathroom, starts pointing his gun at the girlfriend. I, I, I really loved this part more than I thought I would because of Samuel L. Jackson's performance and how he, how cool and collected he is, but then also how he meets the energy of the kind of tweaked out girlfriend who's standing on a table pointing a gun at him yeah. because he's, he's constantly just like shouting at Yolanda to not freak out, yeah. even though they're all pointing guns at each other. He's like, I can de-escalate this. We can do this. We can figure this out. And it's, it's, it's played for comedy, but it's like the, the banter between them is kind of amazing. It's um, so good. Especially in how he handles the new addition of another gun coming into play. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, <laughs> he's like, Vincent, you stop, you motherfucker. Yeah. It's so good. The restaurant manager's like, don't be a hero. And they're all like, shut up. <laughs> Um, and then he he does defuse the situation. He kind of lets them go with the money, um, but he he gets his he gets his bad motherfucker wallet back, um, and then and then they leave to go about their day. And we know we know Vince is gonna go die, and Jules is gonna go walk the earth, walk the earth like uh, like kung fu. Uh, it's crazy that that ending scene is fantastic, and that's why I think Sam Jackson's character gets a wonderful arc. Because you see all the bullshit and you can kind of infer that they've been through a lot of things. That's how mm-hmm. he's able to handle, you know, a crazy situation like having a gun pointed at him and this way and all this kind of stuff. He's he's seen some shit uh, and he has it, 
a turning point for sure. It really, it really tied the movie together for me in a fun way. Cause I didn't, I didn't see the Sam Jackson arc coming. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize I was in the middle of a Samuel Jackson arc. Cause I got so tied up in the Bruce Willis story, which wasn't really my favorite Bruce Willis, the, the, Bruce Willis portion kind of takes up the middle hour of this movie. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's all right. Um, like I didn't need the, 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 <laughs> the sex dungeon scene yeah. in the bottom of the pawn shop. That was kind of out of nowhere for me. Um, and then uh, you kind of get out of that. It's, it's a nice little resolution. I absolutely thought Bruce Willis wasn't making it out of this movie. And I was kind of surprised when he and his, his, <laughs> his girlfriend uh motorcycled away um i like, was like wow good for them technically that scene him and uh, uh fabian getting on the motorcycle fabian fabian like getting on the motorcycle and riding away on uh the chopper it's the chopper by the way it's a chopper baby mm-hmm. uh that's like the end of this that's like the chronologically last thing that chronologically the last thing stuff. gotcha so like bruce willis as scummy as he was and as much as he fucked over marcellus wallace and that whole crime boss syndicate uh he gets away with it he uh, made it out as well as uh pumpkin and honey bunny you know they they made it out of the the diner alive with a bag full of wallets truly and, uh, like i i don't know if it's a sign of like Tarantino's style evolving or something like that. But after seeing his later movies and then coming back to watch this, one of his first movies, I expected so many of them to die at so many points when really they, they ended up just kind of talking through it or, or, or getting out of it. This movie is much more of like a conversational movie than a hundred percent. Yeah. Done. This, this definitely carried on the, um, the Tarantino-ing of a movie where it's about just like interesting, really weird, quippy dialogue that like most people mm-hmm. wouldn't have in normal everyday language, but it's still captivating nonetheless. Um, mm-hmm. I realized I forgot to show the trailer at the top. <laughs> so let's do that now because this is a golden, this is a great trailer. This is still from the 90s I'm, of trailer. I'm days. interested to see what they what they highlight here. Oh yeah, this this is good. This is good stuff. So let's let's get this up and rolling. Already off to a great start. Miramax <laughs> Films is proud to present one of the most celebrated motion pictures of the year. The winner of the 1994 Palme d'Or. The best picture of the Cannes Film Festival. Getting big man's wife. Well, he's going out of town, Florida, and he asked me if I take care of him while he's gone. Take care? No, man. Just make sure it's a good time. Make sure she don't get lonely. Girl, you see, this is a moral test of oneself. I do believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. I love you so much, can't count on Whether or not, you can maintain loyalty. Night of the fight, you may feel a slight sting. Pride only hurts, it never helps. In the fifth, your ass goes down. I have to say, play with matches, you get burned. We should have shotguns for this kind of deal. We're in a lot of danger, aren't we? I'm prepared to scout the earth for that night. 
sorry. Did I break your concentration? Get down, get down. You got a corpse in a car, minus a head in a garage. Take me to it. Don't you hate that? Hate what? Uncomfortable silences. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Maria de Medeiros, Bing Rings, Eric Stoltz, Rosanna Arquette, Christopher Walker, and Bruce Willis. Looking at something, friend? Ain't my friend looking. Die, you mother! A new film directed by Quentin Tarantino. You really thinking about quitting? Most definitely. What's she gonna do then? Basically, I'm just gonna walk the earth. What you mean walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. <laughs> so good. It's great. I gotta, I gotta confess something here. So I heard that opening song, and I was like. Wow, the Black Eyed Peas have a track on this no. uh, movie. <laughs> they were twelve. <laughs> I caught myself like two seconds into it. You know what? Um, it's not. It's not by accident that our own uncultured cinematic universe theme, written by me and recorded by our friend Matt Hobbs, sounds similar to the surf to music. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, I, and puppet that songs is, too. That is what I thought watching this movie. I was like. That motherfucker, Justin, is ripping off Pulp Fiction in our opening music. <laughs> Even the video, too. Like, that's how, like, ingrained this movie is in my brain. I You've love just so- been waiting for us to do this. I, I I, mean, it just came up naturally. I looked at the list of movies either of us haven't seen, and I was like, Joe hasn't seen Pulp Fiction. It's it's happening. Um, <laughs> I love I love surf music, and actually, so does Quentin Tarantino. Uh, that's why he chose it, because it's like, quintessentially like american and that's what the story is it's just like gritty dirty america so like pairing that with like light bubbly springy reverby surf music is is really neat um yeah one of the one of the thoughts i had while watching this movie um was so like before going into this movie i had a rough idea of like who the characters were and what they're what they're doing and all that right um but one of the surprises i had was like just the the level of screen time each of them got. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about Samuel Jackson a bit, how I kind of thought like, oh, he gets like two scenes and that's, I mean, they're great, but that's it. And I didn't really realize he had like a full on arc there. Um, but I want to kind of talk through with you, uh, John Travolta and especially Uma Thurman here, who we haven't really talked about yet. Yeah, we have. Um, so John Travolta is nominated for Best Actor yeah. Um, as opposed to Samuel Jackson being nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Speak on that. Um, do you think he's mm-hmm. kind of the main character of this movie? Whereas I could probably think of someone else as the the lead. I agree. And, you know, I think the unfortunate truth of it is it comes down to Greece, really. Uh, mm. John Travolta was a household name uh, and continues to be, I mean, even though he's he's in the past 15 years, he's kind of fallen off the radar and kind of gone a little nutso. But uh, in the eighties, nineties, you know, he was, he was carrying a torch. So he's got the name recognition. And like I mentioned at the top, like he, this is a unique, different role 
um, you know, it, it's always fun to see like your favorite, like good guy actors kind of take on like a darker role or something like that. Like imagine if Tom Hanks was like a hyper villain or something like that in a film, oh, you know, like it'd be Tom like Tom Hanks who, in a Tarantino movie. Could you imagine? Could you imagine the world? The, the universe would implode. It would, it couldn't handle it. Uh, he is too pure, but, uh, I think it's, I think those kinds of things are at play here. Uh, while I, I don't think Vincent Vega, while it's a cool fucking name, like, I don't think John Travolta's <laughs> character is like the main character. And it's hard to really pinpoint like a main lead in this. Um, you think he's kind of the star of this. He has, although some of Bruce the name, Willis, yeah. Bruce Willis gets the and here. Yeah, because he was, you know, he was coming off a of Die Hard, that kind of thing. He'd already kind of played like the tough guy persona. He was forty five when he made this movie. Um, is he really? Yeah, he's old as shit. Um, wow. Yeah, wow. But uh, but yeah, I, I think it had the name recognition. That's why he got like the lead. Travolta got like the lead title card, um, and you know the the lead actor kind of thing. But um, I ultimately think, you know. Uh, there's there's a slew of other actors in, in this movie who are equally as deserving. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier, like in terms of just like surprising uh, Tarantino ness, like you expected them all to die, kind of like Hateful Eight style by the end, mm-hmm. uh, when it's really it's just um, Travolta's character who gets who bites the dust in the end. That's that's kind of the big moment, and it's it's barely even a moment. He just it's kind of like shocking. gets it's, shot in a bathtub it's uh it's shocking right because uh, you don't expect that to happen uh and i remember like still even to this day still kind of like feeling bad or just like oh man he he did it he, he died but like it's because from the day prior at the diner him and jules having that conversation of jules being like no man that was a, a miracle uh we're not going to get a second chance i'm done and uh vincent's like no man like i got to I'm going to keep it up. I don't, I don't believe what you're saying. And he bites the dust the next day. So, yeah. It, but then you, you, the way that the movie is structured and how these little pieces are kind of out of order, the, the movie technically ends with them kind of just walking out of the diner into, into the daylight. Mm-hmm. And you get to kind of live with that last image of like, yeah, they're going to go off and live their lives. As long as you forget that, uh, Earlier on in the movie, uh, Travolta dies. Yeah, it's a it's a neat subversion. And I remember like this was my first um, exposure to a movie that plays with out of uh, order narrative structure. And I remember just thinking it was just like the most genius thing. But of course, <laughs> in numerous movies have, do, have, have done this multiple times prior to. But this one was the first one I saw. And I was just like, oh, my God, that's amazing. You can tell stories like that. That's crazy. I thought it always had to be linear. Nope. Um but yeah, so in, in terms of just like cultural impact, this movie, of course, made Tarantino a household name. Uh, the relatively low budget but packed star power, you know, instantly proved a, uh, you know, it turned to be a, a working equation for Hollywood. You know, you don't have to pump in a bunch of money to an indie uh, effort to get a ton of return back. Uh, and as we saw in the trailer, this movie won the nom de plume or whatever the hell it was at con the palm door. Yeah. No. <laughs> what's, what's nom de plume. Oh, that's, that's like a, it's like a fake name or something. Yeah. Back when, back when they advertised a palm door win on, on <laughs> uh, trailers for blockbuster yeah. movies. Yeah. Uh, apparently there was a ton of buzz uh, for this movie uh, leading up to its release. So like this movie, like 
built up the hype and then delivered on it, uh, which mm-hmm. is something I think Hollywood's been chasing ever since. A lot of times movies are hyped up and then completely fall flat. Um, but this one, you know, like I mentioned, paved the way for a bunch of other indie auteurs to do their thing and get it out into more more eyeballs. Paved the way for Uma, uh, I would say as well, with the Uma of it all. Like, I, she's definitely uh, the bride for me, but I wonder uh, for how many people out there she is Mia Wallace from Pulp Fiction when you look at her, right? Yeah. Because um, she's kind of the face of this this movie's marketing materials. She um, is with the she iconic is. poster and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, did you did you make the connection uh, since you said you love the Kill Bills uh, when she's explaining the pilot movie or the pilot TV show that she shot, the Fox Force Five, mm-hmm. uh, the description of the women that she used to partner with as the bride in in Kill Bill? You make that you made did you make that connection or did you I, know that already? I did. I, I knew that already, but also I, I, I noted it as I heard it. You saw it and you're like, um, here it is. Which is so fun. What do we actually think happened there? He just had an uh, an idea for a, a pilot TV show that he's going to put into this movie, but then that kind of became an idea for Kill Bill. Probably, right? Uh, or that mm. that in-universe TV show was kind of like loosely based on like these real women, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the Kill Bill universe. Um, speaking of connections, so in uh, Reservoir Dogs, there's a character, I can't remember his first name, or even like what the agent color he is. They all have agent colors. Mm-hmm. Um, but his last name is Vega, and they mention that he has a brother. Okay. So, so like Vincent Vega and his brother, it's the brothers Vega. Um, they make that connection. I think they also mention Vincent Vega in Kill Bill Volume 1. There's a name. It's drop. like the, it's like the Danny Trejo cinematic universe also includes Spy Kids and um, <laughs> all of his more violent movies, which is one of my favorite facts. I love that. That's so good. Uh, <laughs> it's like the Machete universe also canonically includes Spy Kids. <laughs> I'd believe it, and I would watch it, and I would eat that up. We should package that and sell it, Joe, as like a as a box set. The, the machete universe. I love it. Uh, so Joe, let's get real for a second. I want to get real with you and talk about, some con- me. talk about some controversies surrounding this movie at the time of its release. And even oh. 30 years after the fact, this movie was released. Tell so, me. so obviously the nineties was a heightened time. The eighties and the nineties were a heightened time for violence in America. The one of this movie it was a different was, time. It was, it really was this movie. Uh, was pointed out specifically to as to blame for the violence in the streets and the youth of the early nineties, uh, much akin to like the satanic panic of the eighties and whatnot. Um, you know, you talk much about, akin to yeah. our previous episode with scream, I would say too. You're right. You're right. Uh, same kind of time frame too, right? 94, 95, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. People point to this and like mortal combat and whatever else. I mean, like this is why people are killing each other. It's like, no, you're not you fucking idiot. Um, but yeah, so you mentioned that you thought this movie was going to be way more hyper-violent than, uh, than you were expecting. But for the 90s, this was graphic, 1994, you know? Um, wow. Is it, do, you, do you agree with that? Do you think that this is, could be seen as a catalyst for violence in the streets? Or is, you know, people are... I think, it's, 
I think it's much more of like a philosophical talker than it is like, you know, I, <laughs> I saw hateful eight in theaters with my family, which was insanity. It came out um, during the winter. So it was a, you know, it was a family. Oh yeah. We all just got together and decided to see that movie. <laughs> um, and, uh, that one, like I'm, I, I, I know there was dialogue in that movie, but I can't remember a, a single bit of it just because everything was painted red by the end of that movie, that whole cabin. Right. Um, and then you have Kill Bill where there's definitely like iconic uh, conversation scenes. There's iconic lines, but then there's also like almost over the top heightened amounts of blood. Right. Yeah. Because uh, it's just it's that sort of movie. It's a it's a samurai for but sure. Also a shoot 'em up tile movie. Uh, and then with this one, I. I, I kind of just went into it expecting that heightened level of violence uh, to sure. the point where it's almost just like not violence. Um, and it, it weirdly came off as more subtle uh, yeah. for me. Maybe, maybe that's just like the kind of wasn't what he was going for with this movie, or maybe it's just like the, the first part of his evolution there. Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, them like blowing someone's head off in the middle of the car and painting the, the car with his guts <laughs> is, graphic. is graphic. But the, there were a lot of he held back in a lot of ways. Um, in that, yeah. like, he didn't even show people getting shot a lot of the times. It was it was just like they showed like the aftermath and stuff. The, the which implication I, I thought was interesting. And then same with like the, the samurai sword at the end, uh, at this in the sex dungeon with Butch. Like, you don't get to see him like. God. You only see him like make a swipe and then the guy just like turn. He's like, ah, he got me. So like it could have been way worse for sure. (laughs) Oh no, no, he got me. So I think it, it, part of it could have been budgetary reasons and other parts, you know, like to avoid an NC-17 rating. But um, yeah, I think it more comes down to, and we keep circling around this is the, the, the language of it and the conversation piece. Mm -hmm. My other half of controversy is uh, another interesting take. I found an article written very recently of people saying it's time to admit that Pulp Fiction is not a good movie and it's Quentin Tarantino being white and writing all this crap that he thinks he can get away with and and all this kind of weird stuff talking about it. So, you know, I, I wrote this down, Love. Like, did, did Quentin Tarantino really write a role for himself where he gets to say that specific line when they go to his house. I couldn't help but think that like, uh, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. In short, like, yes, he did write himself that, that, uh, that line, that role, that kind of thing on purpose, uh, but not in an exploitive way. Uh, I, I did some digging, you know, there's many stances on the scene, uh, the Bonnie situation section of it. Uh, ranging from scathing to people supporting it or whatever. But you look at the source and you look at some other pieces, like Sam Jackson has gone on record multiple times defending, more or less, you know, the director's use of his liberal use of many <laughs> slurs and stuff in all, all of his movies, really. Um, he says, you know, that, that Quentin writes the way that he does, writes the dialogue, uh, it's truth. And it's real and it's dirty and it's on purpose. Like it's an honest look at society as it stands. Uh, goes on to say that there's no dishonesty in anything that Quentin writes or how people talk, feel, or speak in his movies. And I think like that's that's the important distinction of it. It's not just like he's an ignorant white guy that says I can get away with this because I'm white. And he's like, no, he has reverence for these 
films. There's, you know, a whole like black exploitation stuff that he pulls from from the 70s, uh, specifically with Jules look and his demeanor and stuff like that. And he's making a commentary on the the violence of like 1992 and 1991 that were going on in, in L.A. Uh, so he paints his L.A. in Pulp Fiction, that universe, that uh, time capsule or whatever, like is a very real, um, if not, you know, hyper stylized version of what he saw in the world. I could see that. Uh, and I will say coming off of just like a first watch of this, it probably doesn't help that Tarantino comes off as like uh, an incredibly douchey white guy in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would say it's less of an issue with him in this movie, because I think uh, as a filmmaker, you know, he has a certain wiggle room there. And more of an issue with Pulp Fiction kind of blowing up and becoming this iconic film and uh, people of a certain persuasion uh, wanting to emulate it in certain ways and taking yeah. taking the wrong lessons from this movie, I would say. And we touched on that already, right? The the fuckboyness of it all. The fuckboy, the film bro. Um, yeah. You haven't seen Pulp Fiction. You haven't seen uh, The Social it, Network. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> same kind of thing like you're taking the wrong stuff out of context it's like this is a i, I think this is just a, a genius movie uh from a, a a young director who was you know creating his uh his view on the world and his love for film and uh and, and put it out in the world and and it it kicks ass uh some lasting impact I'm- go ahead I'm glad I, I can be part of the Pulp Fiction conversation now. Uh, I'm glad you it's, can. It's been so long. Yeah. So like some of the lasting impact, you know, uh, of this movie, it's there's it's numerous references in media. Um, I'm sure most uh, things that are popular these days, like Bob's Burgers or Family Guy or Simpsons or something, has in some way, shape or form referenced this movie somehow or paid homage <laughs> to it. Uh, numerous spoofs and all that kind of stuff. Um, you'd be hard pressed to find it. Famously, you would you would not know about Bob's Burgers because yes. you have not seen it, Never. and that's that's going on the list for me to make you watch. That's that's when we decide to expand this into the uncultured television universe and make a podcast <laughs> about that. <laughs> One day we'll do that. Um, but yeah, and, and other things I pointed out before that, you know, this, this showed that indie films can be successful. It's not, doesn't have to just be a passion project that no one has to see. doesn't have to see the light of day. Um, and yeah, that's why if it means that Samuel L. Jackson has an Oscar nomination. Uh, I'm all for this movie. Existing. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so I want to run through, uh, a couple like iconic scenes and lines and cinematography mm-hmm. bits that I, that really stood out to me. So obviously we already touched on the Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, not a real Bible verse, unfortunately. Um, but here's a here's a fun thing. Did you know, in uh, Winter Soldier, at the end when they go to Nick Fury's grave, on the tombstone it says Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, the path of the righteous man, and it's I like didn't a, know that. It's a cool. That's really cool. I remember seeing that in theaters, that's being like, so fun. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, other bits of, of fun fun dialogue. Like you said, this is, movie is uh, wildly quotable. Uh, I'm going to get medieval on your ass is great. Um, 
the whole opening sequence uh, with Brett and Jules when they're talking about the, the what exchange, uh, English motherfucker, do you speak it, uh, is a common one that I that we say a lot. Uh, another one that I that I uh, like to throw out with my dad every so often when we go to the house and we're washing up for dinner or something like that. It's like you watch me wash my hands. I watched you get them wet. <laughs> I, I did read as I was going uh, kind of through some notes on this movie is that so there's so many important bathroom scenes in this movie. Yeah. Um, a lot of the dialogue takes place in the bathroom. A lot of the shots take place in the bathroom. I mean, read what you will into that. I'm really uh, I'm curious really sure about the interpretation there. I want to do some digging into that. Like why so many bathroom trips? Like a lot of the times Vincent's character is in the bathroom reading that book. I, I meant to look it up what the title of that book was and if it had any I was also interested in the book, yeah. And there's uh, there's multiple points in this movie where people just like have to go to the bathroom. Which is an interesting take. You know, a lot of movies, you don't see people stop to eat. You don't see people stop to go to the bathroom. You don't see people doing normal everyday things. You don't see people cutting up their cocaine and doing a snort, doing a line before they go. Doing <laughs> a snort. <laughs> so that, this is... the kick this movie is a lot of like extreme violence or extreme conversation happening within the framework of everyday uh, normal things. Absolutely. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, Garcon means boy. I didn't know that little French for you. <laughs> uh, Royale with cheese is good. And then another one that uh, is, is my, one of my favorites uh, and my dad's too is uh, it. They threw it in the trailer is um, when Jules and um, Vincent are in the hallway just before they go and bust into the apartment. They're talking about foot massages and whatnot. Jules goes, come on, let's get into character. Like, I love that. They're getting into character. They got to turn on intimidation mode. Super cool. Um, But yeah, so I want to talk about the cinematography just for a little bit, just real quick. Um, Standout, iconic shots uh, that you see used a lot these days. Most recently in Stranger Things Volume 4, the... uh, in cam- like inside the trunk, opening the trunk of the back of a car, and the cameras in there, straight up. It's a big like, trunk movie, yeah. That is uh, that is a Tarantino original shot. Like that's a very cool shot. Um, the over the shoulder, uh, Marcellus Wallace talking to Butch is com- it's a common shot over the shoulder, but it's just so intimidating because you can see just how big Ving Rhames really is. Mm-hmm. Um, Another thing I wanted to point out, I meant to bring it up at the top. You mentioned the briefcase. What's in the briefcase, Joe? What is in the briefcase? What do you think's in the briefcase? Has has this been studied uh, for uh, decades at this point? It's been theorized numerous amounts. What I'm wondering, though, is does the briefcase come up in any of the Tarantino cinematic universe at all? I, I don't, don't really know the plot of Reservoir Dogs, uh, but it's not something similar like that. Reservoir Dogs is about like a, a ragtag group of just like bank robbers kind of thing, and then it's a it's a bank heist gone awry. Um, it's a really cool watch. You should watch, you should check it out. Um, but yeah, so the prevailing theory, and buckle up because it's weird, uh, of what's in the briefcase. So you see it Someone's a couple soul. times. Yes, <laughs> you see. Is it, it co- really? You see it a couple times. the The way that when people open it and it glows, and then the way that they have like reverence for it and just like change their demeanor completely from what they're seeing in there, and they close it, and they're like, "Is that what I think it is?" And they close it, or just like the shock that they have. 
the story, mm-hmm. the theory is, is that that is Marcellus Wallace's soul, and he's trying to get it back. <laughs> Somehow it's in a briefcase, but he's trying to get it back. He sold his soul to the devil. And somehow it escaped through the back of his skull. That's why he has a Band-Aid on the back of his head. Wow, um, yeah. And the briefcase combination is 666. So these hitmen are trying to get back Marcellus Wallace's soul that he sold somehow, and it ended up on the crime syndicate. Uh, you know, he's trying to get it back. That's the. Do they end up giving it to him? Yeah, so they get it uh, to him. Uh, after they leave Jimmy's house, they're in the, the volleyball clothes or whatever. Uh, and you know, they meet, uh, Vince meets Butch for the first time in the bar. Right. And they make the handoff there. So he, in theory, gets his soul back before he goes to Florida for the night. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's (laughs) the prevailing theory. That's what's in the suitcase. I didn't see that coming. Did you? I know. I can't believe you got it right either. No. Um, another shot that I love is the, uh, the John Travolta heroin ride. Um, it's clearly shot with using like old Hollywood style of shot. Like it's obviously a still car, but it's like bouncing up and down and the lights are kind of just moving. And then there's like a movie projection projection right behind him. But it's so, he just seems so chill in that car. He's having such a chill time. And you're like, Oh, that's what heroin's like. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah, I realized watching this, I was like, "What does heroin do to you?" You know, it does that. It makes like you chill. Or downer makes you chill. Chill as shit. That's super right. cool. Um, and then there's numerous, <laughs> numerous tight, tight, tight shots for a second. Um, namely, in the opening scene when Vince goes to pick up the hamburger, it's this really close-up shot, and then it it snaps away for a second, and it's really interesting. Uh, and then uh, obviously the the shooting up scene. Um, where he's drawing up his drugs before he goes on the car ride. It's it's like another mm. really tight shot. It's very Requiem for a Dream. Uh, that that was what I was thinking of. Uh, I I kind of loved the the shot of like the blood going into the vial before he pushes everything yeah, in uh, slow motion. In. That was Super. cool. And then there's the the lips to the microphone when uh, Vince gets to uh, pick up Mia, and she's watching him on the closed circuit TV. And she's, it's just the shot of just her mouth and the camera. It's super cool. Super, super cool. She's a weird, she's a, she's, she's a so weird. bored little crazy housewife. Yeah, yeah, she's so weird. And then obviously you got the dance. You got the dance number at Jackrabbit Slims. And um, I'm going to embarrass my parents again one more time before we close <laughs> out. Uh, so you've heard of Johnny's Hideaway, right? The dance club in Atlanta off of Roswell Road. Oh, I have not, but you're going to have to tell me more. So now it's not as cool as it used to be. It's like a shitty club now where, you know, a bunch of young people go. But prior to this, this used to be one of Atlanta's oldest nightclubs where you could go and dance. There's a small little dance floor. Uh, The drinks are over, like insanely overpriced. But you go and you (laughs) dance. And if you would go on like a Friday or Saturday night, uh, you show up at like, seven or eight o'clock or whatever, just as the sun goes down, you go in, they're open already, but that's when like you find a bunch of old people out, 70s and 80s, just getting their groove on, just grinding on each other, having a good time. But um, it used to be a dance club just for like older people to go hang out and dance, and it was really cool. I've been I've been with my uh, parents multiple times uh, and their friends and stuff. Um, but my dad would love 
to go and go up to the DJ and request that specific song uh, that they dance to in the movie. And uh, him and my mom would do the do the twist right there on the Lots dance floor. Just so Lots many stuff. Hands and, in front of the my, face and stuff and my like dad that. Would, my dad would just groove and just look so cool on dance floor. And I was just like, that's awesome. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah, that's that's probably the the iconic moment from the movie that I I knew the most going into this. I was yeah. like, "There's a dance scene coming up, and I'm gonna love it." Yeah, and Travolta just he's like, "There's a dance scene, say no more." It's the choreography, <laughs> get him out of here. Get the choreographer out of here. I know what I'm doing. Let's both just take our shoes off before this one. I mean, to properly twist, yeah, you you gotta have the slide. Gotta have the slide. You gotta have not enough, uh, not no too traction. much friction. No traction. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's it. And give me some closing thoughts. What are your closing thoughts? On closing thoughts. Let me, let me kind of run through the, my notes that we didn't cover. Um, definitely a, a diner conversation, uh, piece of cinema. Um, the, the walk-in, uh, interlude where it's basically, it <laughs> It took me forever to realize this, but it's Bruce Willis's backstory where he's a kid mm-hmm. and Walken comes <laughs> and visits their house, um, tells him that he kind of served with his dad in, I guess, Vietnam, right? Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> gives him gives him his dad's watch. His dad, uh, I think, uh, died in the war. <laughs> jumps into this monologue around how how many uh basically rectums that watch had to pass through <laughs> yeah. in order to get to this kid because like they basically they were in this internment camp for years and years and years and he couldn't <laughs> lose this watch so he was like yeah he, he shoved it up his butt for five years and then when he died he gave it to me and i I shoved give, it up my butt for another two watch. years. And, <laughs> yeah. and then I washed it and, and uh, now, it's, now yours. it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a ridiculous concept. Like his father's watch. Well, tell me about the history of the watch. Like, I don't have time to get into it, but it's really important <laughs> to me. He had to go through a lot. My father died to get me this watch. It's like, like he, it's not even that nice of a watch, I guess, but <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Uh, that scene's crazy because it comes out of left field, and you're like, "What is happening?" It's a, it's a fun little Tarantino uh, moment. Um, I also got Vincent wants to have a chill, normal night with his boss's wife, so naturally he takes heroin. Um, yeah, I have. I want to go to Jack Rabbit Slims now. I want to eat in one of those little uh, cars, the diner that they yeah. sit in when they eat. Um, Uma Thurman looks like an awesome alien with that haircut. Uh, <laughs> there's a random three stooges clip that eric stoltz is watching yeah. in this movie that i weirdly recognized from my childhood it like brought me back like 20 years and i was For like how do i know this yeah uh, and we we watched three stooges growing up and i remembered mm-hmm. that specific episode um it was it was a weird deja vu moment i love um that. and then there's the the overdose scene uh with Patricia, uh, not Patricia Arquette, Rose, Rose, Rosemary Arquette. Ro, ro, yeah, something like that. It's R Arquette. We're freaking out. R Arquette in the corner. Um, and all I could think of was like, I, I would not be able to hit a mark on someone's chest with uh, a syringe if I was plunging it like that. So here's, uh, here's my, um, did you know, uh, 
Vigo Martinson broke his foot in that one scene. <laughs> so <laughs> that sh- that scene specifically with the needle and the stuff, that shot, that was filmed in reverse. Oh, wow. So he yeah. like starts out on her like chest that. and yeah. then goes back up. Yeah, and they that... just ran it back. Super cool, right? Love that. Because That's fun. Because there was no way he was going to be able to hit the mark or you can't come down with that much force on somebody's chest. That's that's movie cinema. That's movie it. magic, baby. That's that's solving problems. Um and then yeah, my last note was um this is this is this is a uh, part of the Bruce Willis taxi cinematic universe. Yeah. Um which also includes uh the fifth element, of course, later. You're right. Uh later that decade. Mm-hmm. Lots uh, of fun conversations in taxis like the <laughs> the one conversation he has with the the lady who's randomly obsessed with uh killing killing a killing man. people yeah uh, <laughs> Esmeralda Villa Lobos House of the Wolves yeah super cool <laughs> love that I love that scene and again that's another thing too like it was clearly shot in not a moving car but like you're able to suspend disbelief because the conversation that they're having is so engrossing and so mm. interesting right um because like at one point he throws a bag out the window and it just drops and like if you're in a moving car it's gonna like go backwards it just falls oh, he's, he throws everything he has out that window i was like the the litter rate in la in the 90s must have been insane it was covered with with dead people everywhere but um yeah yeah i love that uh i'm glad you got to experience it so here we are we're now in the end games we're in the end games folks uh i have two warm-up questions and then uh I'm going to take, I took a cue from uh, our Devil Wears Prada episode, and I'm going to give you another scenario game to play. Um, but two softballs first, and then uh, I'll give you the last one. So we're I'm, talking. I'm really nervous. You should be. So we're talking about the 1994 year of films here. Uh, what won best original song during the 67th Academy Awards where Pulp Fiction won best original screenplay? Oh, fuck. Um, what one best original song? Is it a, um, pop song? I guess you could call it that. I guess you would call it that. Is it the song? Was Top Gun 94? Top Gun was 89. Oh, damn. I think. Or 87, Is it a song? Is it a song that I'm going to know? Yo, yeah. You'd better know it. 1994. Yes. Shit. Um, Think of 1994. Can you give me the best picture lineup for 1994 this year? Uh, I can't give that to you, but my second question that I was going to ask <laughs> is similar. So the same year that this movie was released. Uh, we have Forrest Gump. We have The Lion King. We have Speed. The Mask. Or The Santa Claus. What was the highest the grossing highest... film of 1994? I mean, I I know what the best original song is now. Um, it's Can You Feel the Love Tonight from yeah, Lion King. Baby. Um, that's all I needed. Um, I would say The Lion King as of now. That shit's made correct. like a billion dollars. You'd be correct. It made it was the highest grossing, grossing film of 1994, for sure. Wow. Imagine a year when the highest grossing film isn't a Marvel movie. What 
what a time 1994 was. But even still, look at all those movies that came out in 1994. An incredible year for film, for sure. It's it's a great one, yeah. Yeah. I love that you included the Santa Claus in that. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, that movie slapped. Of course it did. That movie's great. Okay, so... Uh, final, final Jeopardy. Here we are. It's the scenario game. I'm going to read you the scenario. Uh, and then I'm going to give you your selection. We're going to do a couple minutes or a minute of the hold music to kind of give you, gather your thoughts. And then I want your answer. All right. So here we are. Buckle up, Joe. Uh, scenario. You're Joe. You're a gangster in crime ridden nineties, LA. You love drugs, making murder hits, and waxing poetic with your fellow cohorts while eating tasty burgers. You're on your most recent outing, uh, and you decide to take out a coworker's wife out on a date. Things go well. You dance, eat, flirt a little bit, but it's no big deal. Uh, but at the end of the night, she accidentally mistakes your new bag of heroin that you just bought for some Coke and snorts a whole bunch. She's ODing. Oh, no. She's dying, essentially. Uh, so what do you do? You take her to your drug dealer's house because your partner recently just quit. Uh, so you storm in, you're begging for his help, uh, and you begin raiding his fridge for things to see if you can find something to revive her. So here's your task. What can you use to revive a heroin overdose, Joe? You see the following lined up in your drug dealer's fridge. You see uh, uh, naloxone epinephrine, Zimmy, Narcan, epinephrine, or big kahuna sauce. Which do you choose to bring her back to life? We'll come back to you in a minute, Joe. Let's have a break. Hang on, hang on. Is there a correct answer here, or am I supposed to just like give you <laughs> a there's reasoning? A, there's a 100% correct answer, but I want your reasoning. I'll, I'll, I'll recap, but I'll let you think about it. We'll be right back. from and i'll read them (laughs) off again um i have to get rid of my notes that were surrounding them so here we are uh all right so again uh your co-worker's uh wife is uh ODing on heroin you're at your drug dealer's house in his fridge and you're trying to find some stuff that'll revive a heroin overdose so you got uh sounds like a regular tuesday for me yeah right so you got naloxone epinephrine zimmy narcan epinephrine or big kahuna sauce what do you grab to to bring back uh bring her back from the brink of death from an overdose 
Okay, I just want like a player knowledge question here. Is there a reason we are putting epinephrine twice on this list? Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mistyped it. <laughs> All right. Um, not being a uh, scientist or medical professional in the slightest, uh, I would be inclined to... Um, I'm going to... I'm going to go with this. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to grab the big kahuna sauce because okay. I know I know that my uh, boss's wife is uh, is allergic to some of the ingredients <laughs> in this big kahuna sauce. Uh, and so what's going to happen is I'm going to go over to her her seizing body. I'm going to pour <laughs> big kahuna sauce uh, down her throat and just like all over her skin and stuff. And uh it's science that like her body is going to have an allergic reaction, um, which will cause her uh, heart to start her, back. Blood, her, her, her heart to kind of like start pumping in overdrive. Yeah. Um, her lungs are going to kind of close up. Her cells are going to kind of close up um, so that the, the heroin can't really get in anywhere. It's like, it's like the scene from signs where the kid can't ingest You're the poison because right. he has oh. an allergic reaction. That's oh. what I'm going off of here. I'm, I'm bringing in M night Shyamalan. I um, love that. and so I am saving her via giving her a life <laughs> allergic, allergic reaction. I mean, the percentage, uh, is pretty low that she's going to survive. Right. So but why points not? for creativity? I'm sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. In this universe. Yeah. Like you said, you are a man of science. You are a scientific gangster for sure. That is, that is amazing. Uh, I like that you I'm, knew that, that she was allergic to it. So you're right. That she, is, that is the, one she, of the answers. That is an answer. <laughs> she does not have a good night, but she survives. Yeah. The, uh, the actual real answer. Uh, let me, let me go through some of these. Uh, so naloxone is the main active medicine used to reverse overdoses that's the right answer it's you would have wow. you should have grabbed the naloxone epinephrine I should probably know that epinephrine uh is adrenaline which is what he used uh that actually won't reverse an, an od that is not scientifically accurate i was kind of thinking that as it was happening i was like you're gonna stab her heart like that's not gonna do anything I mean, I guess like if her heart had stopped, like technically if you're overdosing, like your heart doesn't stop, I guess. I don't know. I did a little bit of a deep dive in this and I'm sure my search history and the CIA are like, why is he looking up how to reverse a heroin overdose? But um, this guy's not having a good day. Yeah. So uh, technically the other and the other choices that I have. So Zimmy is a pre-dosed syringe filled with naloxone and Narcan is the old brand name for naloxone. Uh, so... The wrong answers were epinephrine and big kahuna sauce, but you made big kahuna sauce, so I'm going to give you points. You made it work. Yeah, I, I'd really like to point out that my version of this game for you was how would you go and steal the Harry Potter manuscript, and your version was you need to have medical knowledge on five <laughs> different substances. Of which three are the same. <laughs> Brush up, Joe. Come on. Show me how these two compare. Um <laughs> But I like this. We should we should keep this going in future episodes. We absolutely are. And next time, I thought about this a little bit too late in the day before we start to record. Uh, let's try and do a, a cocktail hour uh, related to the film, and we can share that with the with the lovely people at home watching or listening along. 
I remembered it based off of our notes from last time, but I also uh, am trying to go exercise after this, and I didn't want to exercise with a cocktail. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> so I selfishly did not remind you. That's fine. I, I don't fault you for it. But hey, anyway, that's it. We've done it. That is Pulp Fiction uh, from the Uncultured Cinematic Universe. Joe, I'm so glad uh, you now uh, were able to share with that with me. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm a film bro now. And you are it, a film it bro. feels great and it feels uh, better than most people. Yes. Yeah, you're right. The power you wield now is uh, is immaculate, so use it wisely. <laughs> um, again, yeah, catch us on YouTube. Uh, just search uh, Uncultured Cinematic Universe and wherever podcasts are. Uh, be on the lookout for the next episodes. We'll catch y'all later.